Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. We're so excited and thankful that you're listening. In today's episode for the main content, Thinkling Stearns, as he drops his Apple pencil, <laughs> he uh, he's going to talk about the death of Ivan Illich again by Leo Tolstoy. And uh, so we'll look forward to that. And we have a couple of introductory comments to make here regarding the bookstore. So we ordered some new Thinklings merchandise that you might want to take a look at. We ordered it a bunch, uh, a couple of months ago, a long time ago, a bunch of days ago. That's what was about to come out. And I realized that's not a great phrase, but then I ended up saying it anyway. Horrendous. A bunch of days ago, we ordered some new merchandise, some nice crewnecks and uh, some new t-shirts designed by Sydney Kirkwood. And uh, we think you guys are going to really like them. And you should just check the bookstore as we're recording this, they're not here yet, but hopefully they're here by the time this is airing. And uh, we would love to sell all of those. We would like to get rid of them all. So if you want some Christmas gifts or you just want like five sweaters, just come and buy like five sweaters. That'd be fantastic. You could want, wear one for each weekday and then you could buy a couple t-shirts for the weekend. That'd be great. <laughs> You're Ten. horrendous. <laughs> Hey, that's the best ad I could come up with. I, I will say this. I am very excited for these crew neck sweaters. I think the design is really cool, but I think that just, I, I'm just excited to wear them. I think they're going to be really comfy. Do you mean sweatshirts? Yes. You've been saying sweaters. Sweaters. These are not knitted, everybody, just so you know. <laughs> I was on the, uh, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I was driving the women's soccer team and I had a windbreaker, a windbreaker that I called a jumper. And they, they did exactly that. They laughed at me. And they're like, a jumper? What's a Charlie? That's not a jumper. Um, yeah. Anyway. <sighs> they, those girls on that soccer team, all they do is make fun of me when I drive them. So if you're listening to this, you guys should be kind. <laughs> anyway, uh, speaking of the bookstore, uh, we mentioned this uh, a while back that starting season six, so January timeframe, we're going to do a series through the book, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And this might be a great time to start thinking about where you're going to get your copy of that. And as we know, you want to buy that at the Faith Bookstore. Right, Tim? <laughs> and I know what you're thinking. Well, can I just go to Amazon and just get a copy from a prime vendor and it's here two days later? Yeah, you could, but you could also have some dignity and some character and support a local business and not Jeff Bezos. Another thing that's challenging about that is you have to go all the way to the Amazon and cut through all the jungle to oh, find the yes. vendor. I just, it's so challenging. It's so much quicker just to get it here. And speaking of Amazon, <laughs> I did want to come back and give another discussion about the rings of power. And I just want to put a little, put a little bug in your ear, just a little Ben Shapiro bug in your ear. That Ben Shapiro is doing a episode-by-episode episode reaction series on YouTube. So you can listen to Shapiro's thoughts on each episode of Rings of Power, which I stumbled upon uh, after episode six. And I think he's got some good thoughts about what is happening with the Rings of Power. Uh, I'm not going to really say more about it. I'll say it's getting better. 
it's getting better. I'm getting over the point that it just horrendously mashes up timelines of Tolkien's Middle Earth, like characters that would never have been in a location at a certain time are just there and just deal with it. And I'm getting, I'm becoming okay with it, but uh, the story is getting a little better once you get past the initial bad taste in your mouth. Anyway, all that being said, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. For my book this week, I'm going to talk about the three, the tale of three kings. I'm still working through this, and all I'm going to say is if you've not read this book before, I would very much recommend it. I was given a free copy by Brandon Fritz, and Charlie has read it, and Tim has read it, and I had not. And so I'm, it's like my late night reading. It's kind of a story. It's not what I was expecting, guys. It's good, and it's very convicting. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. What I would say is I think he's doing a really good job of applying good biblical thinking about the stories, the narratives that he's going through in ways that I don't think I was expecting to have it applied and often hurts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm really liking it. I'm not ready to say anything. I'm only, I just got to Absalom. So I'm like maybe halfway. Would you like to give a squishy rating? No, I think, I think I need to get all the way. Well, I, we've I, already I, rated a squishy, it. Yeah. Of us. Yeah. A squishy seven or eight. I mean, it's, it seems like it's up there. It doesn't, it, I will say this. It's not a super deep book. No. But it is deep into your soul as a book goes. Yeah. And I think I might need, I'm reading it very disjoint. I'm reading it and a couple weeks later I pick it up a little bit more. I think it's one of those that maybe reading it sustained over a short period of time would be a little better for me. I keep forgetting like what happened. I don't know. It has, here's the thing. It's a story, but like a Christian living book, like a Jerry Bridges book, you can only yep. read like a couple pages. It's so convicting and it's weird. It's not that kind of a book, but it has that kind of an effect. So I'm liking it. I'm really good recommendation guys. That's, yeah. Shout out to, um, we're recording this. This is homecoming week. No, Ye- this is global reach. Global reach. No, as we're recording. Oh, yeah. This right is, now, yeah, this homecoming week. week. So mm-hmm. if you're re- listening to this like way, way later than October 3rd, um, that's when we're recording it. So there's a guy coming on our campus this week, which I can say this in the recording cause it's, I don't think it's public knowledge today but by the time it's released it will be one of our alumni awards for homecoming is going to dave de Leon, hmm. who is a who's been a pastor at open door baptist church where tim's grandma mm-hmm. is in attendance uh it's not till friday yeah this is this is being released like three weeks from now oh that's right oh man <laughs> so i'm gonna meet my mic and go back that's what i just said that <laughs> as of today it's not public but when this airs it is public so he's 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 what Congratulations, Dave, you won the award. Okay. <laughs> so he gave, he assigned Tale of Three Kings to me on my internship. And he said, Charlie, I want you to do, I want you to read this twice over the summer. And, uh, yep. Oh, I owe that man. And, uh, so I'll just say this about it. I like to give it out because I think it teaches one thing really well. And that one thing is humility. Mm hmm. What is humility? What does it look like? And then it gives you a very nice narrative style look at humility in the life of David, contrasted with two other kings, Saul and Absalom. So, and so a lot of guys have gotten that book from me over the years, but yeah, 
It's a good book. Uh, what am I going to do for books and business? Yeah, oh, yeah. You, you can pick whatever you uh, want. Something I've been studying recently uh, is the book of Daniel. And we're going through it on Wednesday nights at uh, Maranatha Baptist Church. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, when this is airing, we went through Daniel 4. 4? And this is where Nebuchadnezzar has a second dream about this big tree and it gets chopped down and Daniel comes and interprets it and says, this is you. And I uh, just want to share an insight. And I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear what you think about this insight that I'd never quite put together before. It just it's, it's a parallel with something else that has happened in the Old Testament. And so uh, we talk about, or we, you know, we have talked about Deuteronomy 8 a number of times on the podcast and kind of getting a view of God's plan of sanctification, even in the Old Testament, that he took them through the wilderness and he's trying to teach them through difficulty. And as I was studying Daniel 4, it kind of hit me like, it's exactly what he does to Nebuchadnezzar. Like he intentionally takes him out into the wilderness to humble him, to show him that he's prideful. And in the last phrase of Daniel 4, he's praising God because he is able to, and he is able, that is a phrase that came up previously in Daniel 3, repeated, your God is not able to deliver you from my hands, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's not able. And they say, well, we're not going to worship your statue, and our God is able. And even if he doesn't deliver us, we're still going to worship him and not your, your gods. And then at the end of chapter 4, what is Nebuchadnezzar saying? This God is able to humble those who are prideful. Mm. So, and it fits so well with Tale of Three Kings. But I, and I just kind of made this quip at church, like we give Israel, or we give Nebuchadnezzar sometimes a hard, a hard time. It's like he's this wicked ruler of this other nation, but he got it in seven years in the wilderness and the nation of Israel needed 40. So on that timeline, we should be like kind of praising him. It's like he kind of got it a lot quicker, um, which, you know, those two ideas aren't directly related. Um, as if like the length of your trial relates to your spiritual dynamics. That's mm -hmm. not true, but it, it is, it's just interesting parallel that I thought of observed. And so I don't know what you guys think about that, but that's something I've been studying recently. We we're going through Daniel at our church. Pastor Zillers walking through it. And it was interesting as he walked through the end of the Nebuchadnezzar narrative, like it was kind of a really good view of Nebuchadnezzar. He like really did turn and then the next kings following were like total idiots. And it was funny. I don't think I'd ever seen, and I, I think I only thought of Nebuchadnezzar as like the wicked guy, but I hadn't really paid much attention to when he like humbles himself. And it's, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. And, and the way that we've been teaching through it at Maranatha is I think you're seeing people's theology lived out in their own action. And so why does Nebuchadnezzar build a 60 cubit statue of himself? And what does that reveal to you about his theological beliefs? And, and then you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they don't worship. And what does that reveal to you about their theological beliefs? And then you have the Chaldeans mixed in there. That's, just, that's all chapter three. And then what's really neat is in the first four chapters, you see a slow progression of Nebuchadnezzar's theology of like who he thinks God is, but he, and he can even recognize who Jehovah is, but then he never responded to it. 
And then chapter four, he finally, you know, he lifts his eyes to heaven and which is, you know, again, really cool imagery of postures. Like he's commanding everyone to fall down in chapter three, fall down and worship, fall down and worship. And at the end of chapter four, he's literally down on the ground and he looks up and he, and he worships, you know, he fell down and worshiped God. Um, but so it's interesting trajectory of, of Nebuchadnezzar's theology. And, and then he's not mentioned again after chapter four, he's done and we're on to, uh, Belshazzar. But, um, anyway, that's something I've been studying. It's been a blessing. Okay. So I've been working through worthy by Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher. Uh, quote, I want to talk, what I'm going to talk about today is actually very practical, uh, concerning ministry in the church. Uh, so the difference between egalitarianism and complementarianism, some biblical revelation in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 2, and uh, 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to read this quote um, from Worthy. I, Eric, am making an intentional effort to seek out and invite the feedback of women. This might mean pre-reading this chapter, asking their insights on a passage I'm about to teach, or seeking their wisdom on in how to lead a ministry. It also means equipping and tasking women with significant responsibilities, and then affirming their value and gifts in public and in the presence of male leadership. God has given them strength and wisdom that are a gift to the church. I don't do this to make them feel good. I do this because I need their help. I do this because I see it as a God-designed and biblical way of life, leadership, and ministry. So a lot of churches have like a woman's ministry, and uh, Eric Schumacher kind of is presenting a little bit of his woman's ministry and his philosophy of ministry uh, as related to teaching the whole body of Christ. And so an egalitarian is going to minister to the body of Christ a little differently than, say, like a complementarian, and there's going to be some variations between all of them. Um uh, anyway, let me go. I'm going to read another book now to you. This one is Little Woman by Amy Bird. Uh, and this one, what? You said Little Woman. Oh, sorry. No Little Woman. <laughs> Thank you. No Little Woman by Amy Bird. And she talks about how she gets these emails about some women who are having a Bible study. It's really nourishing. And then some man, a pastor or an elder or a deacon come, come about uh, upon the Bible study and they're like, what, you're reading blah, blah, blah. That person's a heretic and blah, blah, blah. And then there's this big fight that ensues because the women have really benefited from the, um, the study. Uh, but then there's this bad theology. How do you handle this stuff? And so she's really arguing for, you know what, there's no little woman and women need to be involved in the instruction and discipleship of the local church. Okay, who's going to disagree with that? Nobody's going to disagree with that. You know, men, women, everybody needs to be learning. The question is, how? How do women go about learning? Now, there's obviously the proclamation from God's word. And then Eric Schumacher has presented a philosophy of ministry where he involves women in both the specific teaching, so he is teaching the women in his church, and also he is teaching, or he is receiving feedback from them. Do you understand? The receiving feedback means they are a primary audience that he is investing in, and he's targeting intentionally. Do you see how it affects his philosophy of ministry? Well, Amy Bird is kind of arguing that same point in this book, equipping all women in the household of God. So the pastor has responsibility to teach the woman. Um, let's see here. Oh, I'm running low on time, so I'm just going to skip her uh, book on that. Now, if you think through, though, some of these uh, comments in the New Testament, for example, 1 Timothy 2, 
verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Uh, and so there's that text. And then there's also in 1 Corinthians 14, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As also the law says, which by the way, that's a really interesting statement, which we'll revisit later. If there's anything they desire to learn, the text states, let them ask their husbands at home. Then he states, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. So a lot of people are, you know, these are all exegetical issues, and we're going to talk about this text and that text and so on and so forth. But the biblical model is actually that the man is the head of the household, and so he is the primary discipler of his household. Now, we think of that as like, man, we need male leadership. Men, you need to lead your homes. And that's exactly right. And when we think of leading your homes, who are you supposed to be leading? Well, your children, you need to be investing in your children. You go to Proverbs, my son this, my son that, my son this, my son that. Men, you need to lead your children. But we don't ever emphasize or talk about that the man is actually supposed to be the spiritual leader of his wife. That is the biblical model. And the reason these women are learning bad theology, teaching bad theology, and all of this stuff is because we have a, a vacancy within the home of a biblical man. Biblical masculinity includes a man who loves the truth, has a passion for it, and leads his wife in it. He's, he's teaching her. He's investing in her. This is the way that God designed it. And as far as like a practical model, you know, there's been, it's not much, but there's been a time or two where somebody, you know, my wife may have done this or that or whatever. And then, you know, I hear about it on the ride home or something. It's, it's nothing big. I mean, don't, you know, I'm not picking on anybody at church or whatever else. But actually, you know, I've told my wife and instructed her, if somebody has a problem with you, I don't want them to talk to you. I want them to talk to me. And if you've done something wrong, guess what? It's my responsibility to do, to guide, to lead, to instruct, and to be the head of the household. This actually also protects my wife from other men who are teaching her, okay? Now, the pastor has a responsibility to teach, all right? But the, an average man in our congregation does not have a responsibility to be teaching my wife. And I've had conversations about that. It's my responsibility to lead my wife. My wife is my responsibility as a biblical man to husband her. So this has massive implications for early church ministry. And I believe that this is the biblical model stemming from Genesis through the law into the New Testament. And the reason we have women who are starving for biblical truth it's because we have, don't have men, husbands, that are really leading them. So a little bit of feedback there just on this philosophy of ministry difference. Study it out for yourself, and there's my books and business. All right, let's have a conversation about death again. So this fall, I've been going through a series on death. We went through Ecclesiastes 7. And in Ecclesiastes 7, it says, It is good to think about death. It's better to go to a funeral then to a party. And then we went to Psalm 90, where Moses says to teach us to number our days, so to count up how many days we've been around. And we talked about the implications of counting your days. The idea of calculating came up. So today, I this is, you know, in the this I had not planned to walk through this book today, but I thought it was interesting and it fit with the theme. So we're inserting it here. So I had been 
driving home from camp this summer and I listened to the book, The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. And it was really interesting. It's a classic novel, novella, I should say. And the story, it hit me that it's all about death and there might be something worth thinking about. So the background or what should be behind all of this is our instruction by Solomon in Ecclesiastes to think about death. And so this story is going to be a story about a man who lives and then he dies. And I think even though I don't think it's giving a good theology of life or death or anything else in it, I do think that it will have some benefit for those who seek to be wise because you're going to be confronted with some issues related to living and dying in the story. And then secondly, I think that there could be benefit to a certain group of people on reading this. So for example, we'd mentioned in the Ecclesiastes 7 episode that we normally trivialize death either by not thinking about it at all or by making light of it. So in video games, we're blowing people away and haha, or we just like shy away from it. But this is a pretty grim tale by the end. And it's not really a, you don't really read this to get like a bump or a make yourself happy. It's more of like a, wow, this guy's life really ended badly. But I think there can be some value to it. So let me go ahead and set the table. And then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to narrate through the high points of the story. Well, high points, the the story and then the big moments. And I've, I've, I've listened to this and I've done some research on it. So I didn't get all this my first read through. If you go to read this, you probably won't either. And that's okay. But I do think this is a thinking book. And so that's okay. All right. So just a little bit about the author, Leo Tolstoy first. He was a terrible husband. That's just all there is to it. Okay. He's a Russian Orthodox Christian. He was a terrible husband. <laughs> How does it develop that? Uh, no, no, no. The book doesn't say anything about it. I'm just telling you about the author. <laughs> There's, <laughs> oh, I mean, Tolstoy was a terrible yeah, husband. Leo Tolstoy, the oh, author okay, of you. The Death of Ivanville. He was a bad husband. Uh, he and his wife had a, a, a very strained marriage. And later in life, now he's Russian Orthodox, he's Russian. And at some point in his life, he has this moment, and I need to research it more to get a better read on it, where he sort of, I don't think I would say he converted, but something happens and he gets taken and captured by the Sermon on the Mount. And so he becomes, and depending on what website you're reading, he definitely became a Christian pacifist. So this was like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer moment where Bonhoeffer gets captured by the Sermon on the Mount and then becomes a pacifist. I was going to say one of your favorite theologians. One of my favorite theologians. Exactly. Yeah. No. And uh, he's not my favorite theologian listener. But then um, other people say he became a Christian anarchist. And that's what I haven't traced down to know why are there some sites calling him a Christian anarchist? I don't know anything about this. But the big fight that he and his wife have, they have a lot of them. But at the very end, later in his life, he decides, I want to sell all my possessions to the poor. Or I want to sell all my possessions and follow Jesus. And his wife's like, no, you can't sell all your possessions. Like, we need stuff to live. And it's such a bad fight that he just leaves and abandons his wife. And I believe they had children in the home. So I'm not a big... Wow. So let's not look at Tolstoy and figure out how to live our lives. Right okay? after Tim is talking about how the husband needs to disciple his wife. And... <laughs> Tolstoy just leaves. He's done. He is not discipling his family. Yep. So, uh, listener, you might think, man, this guy is a not a good guy. It's, I, I would not hold Leo Tolstoy up as someone who we look at their life and we live it, live like that. But, 
Bonhoeffer. No, oh, not him God. either. No, no Bonhoeffer, no Tolstoy. You're horrendous. <laughs> I just like to stir it up, you know? I'm you do. I'm straw that stirs the non-alcoholic drink on the podcast. Wow. I mean, I thought you couldn't go any further over the line. Just, okay. So carrying on. So here's the story. The it, death of Ivan Illich. So it was Ivan, non-alcoholic. <laughs> oh, my word. Hey, you know. Guys, think about death. Who am I? Diedrich Bonhoeffer? I'm not oh. drinking over here. <laughs> I have no factual understanding of whether or not he drank alcohol, but... He was German. I'm sure there's a correlation to bad theology and alcohol <laughs> German Lutheran, at some actually. point. Wouldn't you say that that's probably a... Probably. Maybe not a strong correlation, but... Probably. Well, I, let's just... Can we go... Can we get back to the episode here? Okay. So in the story, Ivan Illich, he grows up in a, in a youth of privilege. So his dad is... I can't remember. His dad's got some big government position. And so Ivan benefits from this and having good schooling, good upbringing. He can kind of do whatever he wants. He's got the the opportunities that some of the lower class doesn't have in Russia at the time. So he goes to university and he is going to take a career as a judge. And as he's getting into his career, he begins to behave in a debaucherous way. You might say he starts having casual sex. He starts drinking. And as he initially begins to do this, stop as he initially begins to, there it is. <laughs> There's the correlation. Horrendous. So as he as he does this, it's interesting. He Ivan in the story now, he he says he began to feel bad about his life choices. Okay? So he is engaging in sex, he's engaging in drinking. He's engaging in, you know, frivolous time usage like cards and all that. And as he, well, just games of the time with the drinking and I'm not saying cards, but okay. Drinking just, and cards and casual sex. Goodness. And he starts to feel either regret or shame over his choices. But then he looks at his superiors, like the judges who he's going to work for. And then one day be like, and he realizes they live the same way. And so he carries on. Which I thought was interesting, just as a as an aside. I don't know that Tolstoy. I don't know what he's trying to do in this. I got it. I guess study this out more. But it is. I think it is a normal thing to say that the people around you influence you and disciple you. And in this case, it it didn't teach him to do these things because he was already doing them. But people, by doing the thing they shouldn't be doing in front of him, sort of gave him. It, it sort of was like an influence for him to do the same thing and be okay with it. So what I would say is from a discipleship angle, and this is a Christian thing. Okay. This is not Tolstoy saying, but I say, listener, when you decide to deny your desires and live in the spirit and follow the Lord, you don't know what that does to the people around you who watch. But when you choose to live according to the flesh in front of other believers, you're actually, I think not helping them to follow the Lord. And in fact, you may be either provoking or tempting them through your negative model. Now, I don't know if Tolstoy is trying to do that, but I just thought from a sanctified thinking it through thinking sort of perspective, I walked away with the initial part of the story thinking if he had been around people of good repute and then he had made these errors, he may have, maybe that's the point of the story at that point is he may have turned from it. I don't know, but I thought it was a worthy little nugget of thinking. And so I've just Slide, slide away from the story for just a moment and say, listener, if you're walking consistently with the Lord, then I think you have 
you're, you're not putting yourself in a position to do what these licentious men that he was going to work for one day are doing. So anyways, um, he ends up justifying his, his sin. And then he wasn't really necessarily planning to marry. He wasn't, I don't know if he was planning not to most people married in that day, but he meets this woman and she's kind of fun and it looks like she might make him happy and be a good career choice for him. And it's just kind of a, Oh yeah, this is good. And so it, he almost paints it like on a whim, he gets married to this lady. Now I don't think it's on a whim. It's just, I don't think he thought too much about it. He didn't think it was that big of a deal. So he gets married. And he doesn't it, like at first they're happy and all this, and then they start to have fights. Um, and so that's where I would say that that's like the early life of Ivan Illich. Okay. So he's ascending this ladder, this corporate ladder. He's trying to make a happy life for himself. He's trying to have all the things he can want. Then he ends up marrying this girl and he thinks it's going to make him happy. And the, it ends up causing him problems. Okay. So that's the early life. You know, let's shift to the midlife of Ivan Illich. In the midlife, he has a very unhappy wife. She doesn't have as much money as she wants. She has kids. It's, she's exhausted all the time. She's snappy. She nags. She's argumentative. And a lot of this is because she's so overwhelmed with what's going on. And there's the normal, I would assume, the normal married experiences. Now, this is Tolstoy writing from his world of Russia and his own bad marriage. So mm. maybe you're seeing that. I don't know. What are you going to say? Well, that's what I was thinking. I was wondering if it was like him and his life. Yeah, I don't know. Bit. So it'd be interesting. I don't know how autobiographical this is. I don't think he's primarily trying to do that, but I yeah, don't think, I don't think, think you it, can. Yeah, I mean, but we yeah. tend to write from our experiences. Like exactly. I'm really looking forward to talking about where the Red Fern grows and how Rawls me too. Rawls is like interacting with his own life. We finished it like last week. Like so. he, like he reinterprets, yes, yeah, like he reinterprets his own childhood. But then he dramatizes and changes and fictionalizes. Yeah, he changes it. parts of it. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I'm thinking it might be something similar where yeah. it's fictionalizing like your own oh, yeah. struggles and stuff. And I don't think, I don't think it's not there. I would definitely say that. I just, I don't know, like how, is it just bleeding in? Cause that's his experience. And so I think I agree with you there. It's hard not to think that. So he's got an unhappy wife. He's got an unhappy life. And so then what he does is he tries. Is that where the phrase happy wife In the original Russian, I think that's that's it. The the answer would be da. Um, Yeah. So so anyways, (laughs) it's at this point that he tries to fix his life. And the way he does that is he begins to try to make more money and try to make his wife happy and buy a better house and get a better job. And it doesn't really pan out that well. There is a moment at which he's trying to get a better job and he just through serendipity, just happenstance finds out there's a job opportunity that's not being mentioned or he was going to lose it or something. And he stands up for himself, goes in like gives him kind of a big tongue lashing and ends up getting this big promotion. And so it ended up being like, could have been a bad thing. Turns into this really good thing. So he's making all this money. And so what he does is he buys a bigger house and he's going to get this nice house for, he's trying to get a better house for his wife during this time. I want to say one more thing before I go on. He, when, when life gets bad with his wife and his family, he begins to escape through his career. 
So after dinner, he's got to go and review case files. And during the day, he fully throws himself into his work. And then the, 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 the store, the, like the narrator or Tolstoy himself point or not Tolstoy, sorry. Ivan points out, somebody points out in the book that he learned how to clinically approach a court case. And by that, he simply means to be completely detached. He finds a very objective computational way to look at a court case without actually considering the people coming to court. So it's depersonalizing. It's not real people. It's like, here's this. And he gets really good at this depersonalized handling of the court's cases. And so he's able to, if you think about it like this, if you have no empathy, sympathy, or love for the people in front of you, you may decide something differently as a judge. And he's able to fully detach. And when they have questions, he sort of answers in these obscure ways, but it's very like clinical modernistic. It's really, it, he doesn't get super specific here, but it comes up later in the story. So we just want to plant that little time, time delayed fuse and, and keep moving. So that's his midlife. So he buys this house. He gets this really nice house. Now we want to go to the section I'm going to call the accident. Okay. He buys a house and it's in a town over. And so talks to his wife and he says, I'm going to go live there for a couple of weeks and get it just right. And then when it's ready, I'll send for you and we'll move out here. And it'll be like this big, thing. he's really excited. He, he points out how he's so excited, how she's going to respond. And so he's getting everything just right. He's buying curtains. He's buying tables. He's got a servant helping him move things around. He's, he's really trying to, he works during the day. And then at night he's doing this house thing and it's going to be so great. And so one night he goes to put up a curtain and he puts the ladder up and he goes up the ladder. And as he reaches out, he slips and falls off the ladder. And as he falls down, he has this like seemingly insignificant accent where along the way down, he hits his side really hard and he's able to stand up, walk it off. His side's kind of sore and it, it like hurts. Um, but that's it. It's just, he kind of has this injury. And so he's kind of limping around for a little while, gets the house done. His wife and kids shows up or kids. I can't remember how many he has at the time. And she's delighted and he shows her around and it seems like it's kind of going well for a little bit there. So that's the accident. Now it doesn't seem like that significant of an accident, but the way the author tells the story, you know, something happened here with this little accident. I think he fell down and hit a door handle on the way down or like a knob of something and his side really hurts. So now we want to talk about the next segment I'm going to call the illness. So we've had the early life, the midlife, the accident, and now the illness. So from this point on in the story, he's sort of attained the things that he wants to attain, and they're not really changing his scenario much at all. While at the same time, he's starting to have this bad temper that flares up at times. He also has a really bad taste in his mouth. Not like metaphorical, like he literally gets this bad taste at times in his mouth. Can't figure it out. His wife at this time is really frustrated with him and she kind of starts to become very aloof. So they live in the same house. They kind of exchange pleasantries, but she's occupying her time going out and going to parties and taking her daughters here and there and all that. And then he's occupying himself, go to work, but at work he's noticing he's getting a little more brain foggy, gets this weird taste in his mouth. He can't really focus. There's something's going on. And all the while his side still hurts. So he finally decides to go to a doctor 
And this doctor approaches him completely clinically, completely depersonalized. Hmm. And start saying things like it could be a floating kidney. It could be. There's like random stuff he says down there. And he prescribes Ivan some stuff to do and to take. And Ivan gets all in his head. Like he's, oh, this is not going to work. And then he goes, he starts taking it. After like three days of taking the medication, he's like, I'm healed. This is great. I don't feel bad at all. The taste is gone. And he quits his medication. And then time goes by and it comes back. And he does this weird back and forth swinging of like, do I take it? Do I not take it? Do I take it? Do I not take it? And then his wife is like, you really need to go to the doctor. And he doesn't want to go to the doctor again. The doctors didn't treat him well. He's really frustrated how depersonalized they treated him. And he starts to think this is really serious because it gets really bad. And so now's where we're going to move from the illness to the death. But the only thing I want to point out is that that's where he begins to be treated from this point in the book on by the doctors, the way he treated all of the people he worked with. He knows this is serious. He thinks this is going to kill him. And by the way, there's a lot of question about like what the illness was in real life. And I don't think anyone knows what it is. You kind of think it's appendicitis. You kind of might think it's cancer. And so some people would say it's this or that, but they kind of wonder if Tolstoy doesn't purposely have it just as a, like, you don't know. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not really that relevant. Yeah. And if you've ever had any sort of a medical issue where you don't know the cause and you go to doctors and they don't know the cause, then I think that gives you an approximation of what Tolstoy wants you to think Ivan's going through. Yeah, that anxiety and mm-hmm. tension, what's really going on with me. Yeah, and you don't know how bad is this? Am I going to die? Am I not? And mm-hmm. Ivan thinks he's going to die. So then is this all in his head? Is it a real illness? It's a lot. There's a lot of questions. But he starts to um, just really hate the doctors because they treat him the way he always treated everybody. And here's where he starts to, to get really sick. He can't go to work. When he goes to work, he can't focus. He's starting to have lots of pain. And it's at this point, he sort of comes home and he's mostly at home sick and bedridden. And from here on out, he at at a certain point starts to kind of waste away. And his wife basically just says, oh, go back to bed. I'm sure you'll feel better. And then she leaves. And he can tell she knows he's going to die and she's not saying anything. She's just living her own life. It's just, it's really grim. So he ends up having this servant guy who will do helpful things around the house for him. And he's just super happy. And he can't figure out why the servant guy was a horrible life is so happy. And here he was, he had all these things and he's dying and he regrets his life. And it ends up that in the end, there's no way to fix it. Doctors are coming to his house and giving him like pain meds that knock him out for three or four days at a time. And he has this violent death where he like basically screams for three days and dies. He tries to tell his wife who comes to see him on his air quote deathbed at this time and his son, he holds his son's face and he means to say, forgive me. And then he, I can't, he says something else like forgotten be, or it's like something gets messed up. And even in trying to like regret his life to his family, he gets it out wrong and then he dies. That's it. That's grim. It is. It's, it's literally like you, and you think the author's going to make a point or tell a story or mm-hmm. like he's going to get re, like, like reborn at the end or something. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he does. So <laughs> now I think the thing that promises is my first time through. Mm. And I think in a book like this, there's probably a lot more going on. So one guy that I read online said, what's interesting is he went up this ladder mm. and then he fell off the ladder. And so what happened in the first half of the book, he's climbing this ladder of life Mm. 
and then the seemingly insignificant thing happens and it knocks him down. And so it's like a, it's like a, it's talking about how, um, fragile life is, which goes back to the Ecclesiastes seven, mm-hmm. the fly in the ointment life is fragile. Um, there's other people who have different thoughts on it, but what I was going to say is now you guys haven't read it and I haven't done the greatest job in explaining it, but why, what do we do with a grim ending like that? Where there's not a lot going on that like gives us a lot of, it's just a dark ending. Like, what do you do with that? Do you have any thoughts? I'm not even sure how to ask that question. It reminds, it reminds me of the stranger by Albert Camus. Yeah. And it's kind of like, what is this? And mm-hmm. the whole point of that book was, well, guess what life is? It's absurd. Yep. You can't figure it out. Life stinks. Uh, and so it kind of strikes me as almost that kind of a flavor, a very hopeless, very godless, very uh, evolutionary kind of a world. Um, and so, you know, guess what? You can't figure it out. Weird, dumb, bad things happen. So I don't know. That's at least as you've told the story, I it kept coming into my mind was The Stranger by Albert Camus. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. It's French. Yeah, that's Camus. Is that the guy that is referenced in that Ecclesiastes textual commentary? Yes. In the dev- definition of Hevel? Yeah. So Hevel, what does Hevel mean? Is it vanity? Is it absurdity? And some have argued that it's absurd. Yep. And they view Ecclesiastes. Uh, they, they There might even been like something that Ecclesiastes may have impacted Camus, but that's not what Ecclesiastes is really communicating. I think... Uh, Authors and commentaries that believe that Ecclesiastes is teaching this idea of absurdity, like life is absurd. Hmm. You can't figure it out. Is a is like the godless version of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Instead, Ecclesiastes is teaching you need to fear the Lord. Guess what? You don't know life. You can't figure it out. So guess what you have to do? Trust. You have to yep. trust. Yep. Right. So the, this is the godless version. Uh, again, like life is absurd and you never know what's going to happen. You climb the ladder, you fall, you get hurt and you die in violent pain. Another part I haven't brought up is he does pray to God near the end. and He's like angry. Mm. Um, I didn't really cu- go back to that enough to give a good sense of it, but he does have this like sort of, I don't know if he really believes it though. At least if he does, it's a weird sort of a God's there when I'm in trouble and I don't really think of him ever. I think so. I just don't know. I'm sure that a Tolstoy expert's going to hear this, me going through it for the first time, and probably I'm going to have stuff that I get wrong. But my, I had a thought here. Tolstoy writes this story about a guy who kind of ascends the ladder and then gets knocked down. And he doesn't understand that he can't fix it until it's too late, and then he just has to sit there and die, realizing he'd wasted his life and done the wrong thing with it. He'd misspent his life. Part of me just can't help but think that I think Tolstoy wants the reader to say, to ask the question, what are you pursuing in life and what are you spending it on? And are you going to regret that one day? Now, I'm not saying he doesn't bring any Bible verses up. He's not really a good Christian example of virtue force in his own personal life. But I, I do think it's not bad to think about death like that because of Ecclesiastes 7. So there's a movie, Saving Private Ryan. I'm not going to recommend it, but I did see it back in the day. I don't know if you guys seen Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, long time ago. Okay, so that movie it's about World War II. It's about D-Day and this. This is it's like liberating France and whatnot. 
and me and my buddy saw it. And I remember I'd grown up on action movies, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, those guys, Bruce Willis. And uh, those are like lots of killing and shooting guns and saving private Ryan had a lot of killing and shooting guns. But when I left the theater after watching private saving private Ryan with my buddy, it was one of the most quiet and somber moments because I think everyone in the theater was rightly considering death in like a serious way rather than a flippant way of the hero wins. So I kind of wonder if as a believer, I'm not saying an unbeliever, but I think even an unbeliever would read this and it would be good for them to think about death. But I think as a believer, you read a story like this and you think about death and it's not wrong for you to say, am I living in a way that I will regret one day? Especially because you have God's word. You have instruction in God's word about death. You have instruction about righteousness. So I think that's good. Now, I do think we could take it in another direction. Who uh, might be helped, you know, from reading a story like this? And I'm going to use the lens of the three types of fools. Okay. So three types of fools. Let's go proverbial with this. How would a simpleton be helped by reading this kind of a story? I'll, I'll throw it to you guys. The simpleton is the naive one, not morally formed. How would they be helped by this? By the death of Ivan. Yep. Illich. The story of the death of Ivan Illich. Boy, do they have the discernment, I guess. We'll assume that they do have the discernment to, to have like, uh, but they, they'd be, they might be helped by understanding the uh, futility of life and the passing mm -hmm. nature of it. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. uh, potentially having a more uh, eternal perspective on life. Let me ask this question. How does the simple person in the book of Proverbs get a good, solid warning? Get a good, solid warning? Yeah, how do they get warned? Rebuke. Okay, there's rebuke. That's one. There's nature itself. Nature itself. That's another. Mm -hmm. But there the is... There is a person who, if you strike the other person, mm -hmm. the simpleton is warned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you strike the scoffer, so mm -hmm. the simple is made wary. So, so I think uh, Ivan Illich is a bit of a scorner. Mm -hmm. He's he's reprobate from the beginning. Mm -hmm. He's living to himself the whole time. He's not listening to any advice. Even the doctors, mm -hmm. when they prescribe him stuff, he's not listening. And at the end... He cannot go back and undo it, and he has to endure the shame and horror of a death that's meaningless. So from that perspective, it's it kind of interesting. It does actually present a biblical worldview in that this is the life of the scorner. Yeah. If you want, yes. if you want, mm -hmm. if you live, if you live the scorner's life, then this is how you get to, yes. yep. this is how it normally ends for you, mm -hmm. and it's not so good. That would be... I would like to study more and think through, you know, if, if that is some reflection on Tolstoy himself, yeah, like he, like he's embodying himself in the story. It's like, I mean, we, we've already mentioned his own character, Christian flaws. If as he writes this, he's giving commentary on his own foolishness. Um, but it's, it's a good, any anytime you think about classic literature, you, you have to treat it fairly, yeah. right? You yep. can't just I think it meant like what mm -hmm. did he mean? Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's in the back of my I'm like I'm really curious. Was he intentionally? Wait, we mentioned Rawls earlier too. Was he intentionally aware of his own projection of himself and his character? Well, I think there's 
two components there. I mean, there is that somebody's intentionally, deliberately writing from their own life and you get elements of their life in the story. But at the same time, they lived a life. And as you live even a fictional or create a fictional life, you will have been impacted by the life that you lived. Yeah. So one or the other is, I think, clearly at play in Rawls' Mm -hmm. life. He has experience and knowledge that you or I aren't going to have. And similarly, Tolstoy, some of that seems to be coming through. And it's certainly possible that, speaking, it would apply to any author, but looking at Tolstoy, it would, I think it would be reasonable that he has intended to teach that lesson and not recognized that it directly applies to him, which would be really sad, but that is a possibility. And, and you know what I should have done, but I didn't because this is how life goes. I should have found when he published this and was yeah. it before or after? Was it near the end, near the beginning? Because maybe it's just an interesting idea and then he prophetically lived it out. So I do think if you're a simpleton and you see this, it, you're seeing the air quote striking, the metaphorical striking of this scoffer near the end as his life crashes down and it may give you wisdom and it may warn you. What if you're a fool? I think if you're a fool and you choose to live the party life and the be happy life and you think you're building this life for yourself, you see that this insignificant fall off of a ladder that doesn't even handicap him right then ends up undoing all the stuff he worked for. If you take that to heart, it may be a very good warning if you have ears to hear. But if you're a fool, I don't know if you would have ears in the book of Proverbs. And then I think there is a warning to the scorner or the scoffer. I think you are Ivan. And so if you continue to persist down this path, you're, you're going to be an example to others. Now, the problem is I'm applying a biblical understanding of folly to this story that's just a creative novel. But I don't think that that's maybe a bad way for a Christian to analyze literature from like a personal perspective. So anyways, I just thought as I read this, I did think it was somewhat nourishing from a sanctified worldview to consider. I really like the Stranger by Camus also, Tim. I know there's those racy parts in it that we have to be careful recommending it. Yeah, we're not recommending the Stranger by Camus. It's dark. Yeah, and there is some immorality. Yep, yep. But I will say that when I read that, it was a perfect picture of nihilism, like you said. And I would say that the weird thing is he talks to God and he's like kind of mad at God. So it's a little bit more like rebellion in this book, but there's still this dark nihilistic kind of like the idea of waste. I've wasted something and I can't get it back. So I would just say uh, if you're interested, there's nothing inappropriate in this book that will be bad for you to read or anything. It is dark. Um, And if you are living a life that's a profligate life and you're just living it for yourself, just remember that one day you're going to die and you'll stand for account for your life. And there is a way that the Lord has for you to turn from that, repent Mm -hmm. and live a life to him. And you can live a life that's pleasing to him. Mm -hmm. And if this story written by some author that we don't really know if he's even a Christian or not, or we don't know enough about it. If this story about a guy dying, if God can use that to wake you up, listener, humble yourself, Mm. humble yourself and turn to the Lord, read Ecclesiastes 7, and then follow the Lord in your life. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.